Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. While I'm interested in the frontiers defining the future of fashion, it's necessary to acknowledge a certain responsibility to and respect for the landscape of our past. Season 9 aims to understand the context our clothing has to our climate, our culture and our country. And in a world where fashion moves fast, examine how we can move forward and find a sense of self back in nature. This series will continue to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a grounded group of talented fashion professionals who share in their ability to work with nature as well as nurture and nourish it. Today, I'm chatting with Eloise Bishop, former Head of Sustainability for the Country Road Group and David Jones. Eloise may be set to embark on new adventures. However, it is clear her passion for care, craft and community has left a firm touch on these iconic Australian fashion institutions. A tactile person, Eloise is passionate about how things feel and whether it's fabrics, farming practices or folk, It's her sensibility to marry sustainability with style and ensure everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Eloise's story. Um, obviously, this season of Style Stories uh, is about our connection and relationship to our landscape. Um, and obviously, whilst we're having these conversations, the ideas and kind of themes of sustainability inevitably come up. Uh, so you are a person that was very curious for me to interview in terms of your role as Head of Sustainability at the Country Road and David Jones Group. Um, but I'm... I'm as I'm always am, I'm always interested in the very human connection to uh, our clothing and um, and our wardrobes. And I, what I'm finding really interesting as we kind of move through this season is um, is that human connection and how the individual uh, relates to the community, relates to the bigger system that affects these ideas of sustainability and how those things come together. And so what better than to interview some an individual who is working with the community to affect change in the system? Um, and having said that, I want to jump into your individual story to understand how you got there. So... Uh, Going into that, that sense of community, was that something that um, you grew up with, a, a very strong sense of community surrounding you? And what did that look like? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And it's really nice to hear you talk about that because I think what you've described in how people connect with their clothing and community and that value is really important and something that I hope more people will become aware of in the way that we value the clothing that we have. Um, it's Yeah, it is something that's been important to me um, growing up and and I've always um, had a strong community around me, um, very strong friendships and a really strong family network as well. So it's very much part of who I am. And growing up, my mum was quite creative, well, still is. She, she would sew our clothes when we were little. Um, she would encourage us to get on the sewing machine. I made my first teddy bear, I think, when I was five. So um, 
that connection to materials and fabrics and old bits of lace that had been in the family and those sorts of things, having that value associated with things that you make and that tactile um, relationship with what you're doing was always very important to me. So um, I have probably had a bit of influence um, in terms of my own style with those sorts of things. I'm quite a tactile person. I like the story behind clothing. I like having things in my wardrobe that I can tell people the story about um, and I guess and how that is a reflection of who I am outwardly as I'm <laughs> girl around in the world. See, I knew I had to interview you, a lady of my own heart. <laughs> so can you give us more of an insight? So obviously it sounds like um, you know, a very warm household that was crafty, but what, what was the greater community? What did that look like for you in your childhood? Um, I'm probably going to make it sound a bit more idyllic than it was, um, but we, I'm, I'm the eldest of, um, of three and then an extended family um, of a cousin who came into our, our family as well and then my mum remarried and I've got a, a younger sister as well. So there's, there's five of us. Um, we, um, we had sort of a, a, a big family. We had um, you know, a school next door. We were in the back pavement of the school or at the park. It was in the 80s, so things were a bit looser then. We were out in the streets. The dogs weren't on leads. Um, we had family in the country, so we had an orphan sheep. We had chickens, um, mice. We rescued all the pets from um, the neighbours and birds that had got hit by cars and things like that. So it was a, a fairly sort of... Um, free childhood which I think back then a lot of people enjoyed and very connected to the neighbours um, and we just sort of made our own fun. Um, so so I think that back then my community was um, the local community, the neighbours and, and being at the park and in the school. I think we, we gravitate as a family to that sense of community and um, and I really hope that that's something that my kids are able to grow up with as well. And it, it, you, you, you have made it sound quite idyllic. Um, and idyllic in both your version of, you know, your, your childhood and now your, your children's version. Um, you know, that it does feel like a very Australian kind of um, good old Aussie upbringing <laughs> um, where there is a freedom and there is just a sense of... Uh, you know, a neighbourhoodness, if that's a word. Um, and so, like, does, in terms of uh, being Australian, is that kind of what resonates with you, that that kind of upbringing? Is that what you would associate with your sense of Australian identity? Yeah, I'm, I, it, it is for me, but I'm also really aware that that's not everyone's experience of an Australian lifestyle. You know, I was really lucky that... I was born to a family that was able to provide that experience for me. Um, but growing up, my mum um, was a nurse at the Children's Hospital. She had very different perspectives, the families that were there and the experiences that they had. Um, and, and both parents sort of involved with unions, teachers' unions, nurses' unions. So I probably, as much as my childhood was was privileged you know to a certain extent I was aware that that was a, a unique and fortunate position that I was in um, and also I guess the more I learn um, around our First Nations culture my my sense of what's Australian is really shifting and I'm learning more about that and certainly what we were taught about our Australian history through my schooling is quite different to what I'm learning now um, and there's so much more access to information and storytelling um, that I that I am and 
really keenly learning about and and speaking more with people to try and help them to relearn their Australian history as well. So you, you've kind of touched on um, the sense of uh, ethics and kind of just, you know, social consciousness that seems to permeate throughout your career, Eloise. Um, and I was wondering, and I think I'm starting to get a tone of it already with your mum being a nurse and kind of, you know, being involved in unions, that very so- strong sense of social justice. I was wondering whether that's something that surrounded you as you were growing up or something that you found elsewhere later in life? Yeah, it was probably something that my parents um, had as part of their value set, um, even with you know, family and relatives that were sick. Mum was always involved in um, helping them and supporting them. So we had that sense of, you know, looking after people and um, and that was always something that, that we were involved with. Um, I mean, my schooling, I went to a school that, um, you know, had a, a sense of giving back to the community. So we were always doing little fundraising things and those sorts of things. And that was something that the school encouraged. Um, but, yeah, I think um, I, I remember my first job, um, I lived in London after uni and I'd, I'd taken courses, I did an arts degree and, and my courses, my subjects were, were very much based on my interests. So I did psychology and sociology and... Um, As did I. So when I, oh, I found that out, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, they were, I did sociology, psychology and gender studies. They were my three majors. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know exactly. Um, and then I went, my first job was in London, worked for a conference company, and it was just a job that I fell into because a friend said they needed people and I wanted to stay over there. And I was standing at a fax machine, so that's dating me, um, faxing conference registrations day after day after day, just going, is this it? Is this is this what I'm doing with my life? And I'm like, this is not what I thought I'd be doing. So it was this real awakening of like, no, I've got to be much more intentional about, you know, that was a different different reason I had that job. But it was this, there's so much more that we can be doing um, and how we use our time and, and align it to our values. So um, when I got back to Australia, that, that was sort of a much more an intended focus than standing by a fax machine and <laughs> getting people to sign up to conferences. <laughs> well, you, you do, you did kind of get, um, it, it seems that you got into community roles and like community engagement positions and, and positions that had that strong sense of social responsibility quite early on in the piece. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of patter about sustainability in various industries now as we kind of lean more into a crisis mode. But connecting your story back to your kind of what, I mean, I, I want to call it an early entrance into the sustainability um, career path was there a connection, you know, you, you've talked about your childhood in the sense of like, you know, chickens and outdoors and playing in parks. In terms of that um, sense of responsibility to the environment, was that something that was also part of your rearing or part of your love of the way you kind of enjoyed life? I, I think so. Um It was certainly probably um, just part of our family value set, I guess. But but there were things that I did that I don't think my parents were necessarily all that happy with. So um, when I had 
uh, in year 10, we did work experience and um, I chose to do mine with the Wilderness Society, which is a, a big sort of not-for-profit in Melbourne that champions different um, environmental issues. And uh, one of the days I came home and um, told mum to put the news on and she stood there watching horrified as there was this huge demonstration and here I am, 16-year-old girl, being dragged off by the police and I was just so proud of myself. I actually didn't really understand the issue particularly well that I was campaigning about. It was to do with logging in, in um, Tasmania. But, you know, that was a bit too far. And so mum was like, mm. So I think there's always been that value set, but I've certainly pushed the boundaries of perhaps what she thought <laughs> might have been possible. But I think, I think that part of... Um, I think if I if I think of that experience and to what I do now, it's it's um, probably a more um, tempered or, or professional way of of using different channels to advocate for change. You know, there's the role that activist organisations can play, um, certainly in those sorts of demonstrations and grabbing headlines and all of those sorts of things. And and where I've found myself in my career is actually working within businesses and you know it's like an ocean liner you trying to turn around huge kind of institutions and businesses for them to adopt more sustainable practices and ethical practices and and challenge the status quo and thinking so there are so many different ways people can have an impact and I've, I've found my path here and in different roles previous to this um, in, you know, being able to use my skills in, in this way to try and advocate for change, but it's certainly not the only way people can do that. Yeah, I, and I want to tease that out um, a, a bit later in the interview. Uh, what I want to, what I also noticed is a string of commonality in your kind of career path is is you, you, you tend to hail back to Australian identity in quite a few of your roles. Um, and, you know, that one of your earlier roles was with the AFL and you kind of can't get more Australian than, than working for the AFL. Tell me how you found that. And was that a passion or to, you know, I mean, you've grown up in Melbourne. Um, AFL is kind of like part of the DNA of, of Melbournians. Um, yeah. Tell me about that position because that was a community and sustainability role, correct? Yeah, um, it was it was interesting because what attracted me to that role was the power of that AFL brand. So, you know, it just cut through everything, you know, the clubs, the way that the clubs can unite um, people of all walks of life under the same umbrella and, and there's sort of a common um, connection that they all have in that sense of community is something that I'd, I'd admired and the way that the brand can kind of, you know, cut through different sections of the community to talk to different issues. So um, I'm actually not a, an AFL footy person. Right. I've married someone who is and I, I've got little clones of him that, will, you know, I'm constantly having to play the Melbourne Football Club song on my car. Anyway, <laughs> where we're at. And, um, but, but, yeah, it, it was an interesting time for me looking at um, this was going back I think I started in 2008. Yeah. Um, so, so the AFL was starting to explore a whole lot of different things. They'd obviously been working with Indigenous communities for a really long time. And um, and I also looked at working on, um, I was working on the multicultural program, so how football can be used to kind of connect um, different communities and, and new people coming into Australia and, and give them a connection to a community community. Um, 
the way people accessed football from a, um, a point of view of physical accessibility, so whether they were playing the game or um, coming into stadiums and those sorts of things. And also environment was a big one. So the country was experiencing quite significant drought at the time and how that was having an impact on a lot of the community football grounds drying up and those sorts of things. So there was a lot of scope in the work that we were doing there um, that was quite interesting. And I think looking at how they've progressed, I mean, they've done some things well. They've obviously, their focus around women's football has really um, increased, and I think that's amazing. So there's been a lot of um, things that they've done well, some things that they still need to work on. Um, so, yeah, I finished up there in, in 2010, and it was after that point that I made sort of more of a conscious uh, decision to um, connect back with that creative side of myself. So um, how I could bring the knowledge that I'd been working around sustainability and community for probably 10 years or so and how I could bring that back into fashion and textiles, which was more sort of where um, I felt my natural space was. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I took a sabbatical and went to the UK knocked on lots of doors and worked for free and found out what was going on over there in the UK. And then when I came back to Australia, was able to start having some conversations with Australian businesses around what, what they could be doing in that space as well. So going back to the AFL, in that environment as a young woman, how did you represent yourself? What was important to you? Yeah, it was... Um, I'd, I'd come from the body shop, which was a very different, um, probably more female-dominated, creative um, environment that was quite fashion-y. Um, and so when I came into the AFL, I consciously went out and bought more corporate sort of wear. Um, I was conscious of the fact that I was a young woman and also not being um, sort of a football fan as well. I was conscious of how I presented myself. So um, the way that I would conduct myself was more around my subject matter expertise of community and sustainability, but not I. my knowledge around football was was limited so would then work with the people around me who could bring that perspective in as well but yeah I was probably conscious of being a young female there um, and would would dress in a way that gave me confidence I probably dressed a bit more corporate than I have in other roles um, but also in the head office that was that that was sort of the culture people wore sort of quite quite corporate wear at the time um, and that was the environment and then the clubs were probably quite different but also a lot of my work was in the community as well so you'd change sort of what you were wearing depending on the audience that you were um, going to and then there was also a requirement that we would go to the games and often you'd be in sort of the corporate um, dining areas so you'd be wearing kind of half going to the football half kind of corporate wear, which was a bit of a stretch for me to try yeah. and get out. But, it's um, always a tricky combination of <laughs> styling. And very warm jackets and things because it was winter and you were watching football. Um, not, and I did accumulate. Also, like you, I'm not the biggest football fan, whether it's surrounded my childhood or not. Um, and even yeah. now when I'm, I am tasked to go to a game with my family, I struggle because we might go to a nice restaurant before or afterwards and then finding that transition is a very difficult styling yep. situation. Yep. And some people do it really well. So um, hats off to them. Yeah. yeah. As long as you can kind of throw a footy scarf on there and it still make it work. Amazing. 
So is it the corporate wear that that that's, that threw you back wholeheartedly into fashion? Did you did it scare you away and, and return you to your roots? Uh, probably not so much that. It was probably more that at the time I had I'd enrolled in a textile, probably towards the end of my time at the AFL, actually, I, enri- I enrolled in a textile design course at RMIT and doing that sort of, you know, in my personal time, it connected me back to probably where I naturally feel um, I operate in a more creative space. And then it sort of got me thinking around um, how could I connect my passion for that craftiness yeah with the work that I was doing in my professional world. So so that thread of craftiness that you gained from your mum, did that continue on with you in the background as you were? Yeah. Yeah? Yes. So I, you know, probably at the time a lot of my friends were having kids. I'd be making quilts for them. Um, I'd, you know, do a bit of sewing like that. Nothing crazy I certainly find it difficult to follow a pattern and stuff but where I can just sort of free form I'm probably in a safer space yeah um but yeah I, I probably ran, renovated my little flat and I'd make quilts and cushion covers and and those sorts of things um and then yeah and then I probably thought well I could actually try and learn a bit more around what I'm doing here I'm very tactile and when I travel I'm I'm always interested to sort of seek out local um sort of the local traditional techniques and um and learn about those and bring them home with me and how can I incorporate those into what I wear or how I've decorated my home so so it was a continuing thread in the background and then and then I sort of had this moment where I'm like, actually, I could kind of try and bring all of this together. So going back to your personal style for a minute, did you do you find that given that you're kind of gaining techniques from other other like from your travels, um, and you've got that kind of natural hand to craft, do you find that your style is quite eclectic? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I think if I was to go rogue, it would be. I'm conscious. I'm probably quite self-conscious that sometimes I can throw too many things in and it looks like I've just jumped out of the dress-up box. Um, so I do – I do. someone said to me once, put everything on and then take two things off or something. There was some, like, I think Coco Chanel says – there's a oh, quote from Coco Chanel that says, take the last accessory off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and and it's funny working in this um, in this environment in fashion because um, I don't probably follow trends as much. But I'd look around the office and I could see, um, like I remember when skinny leg jeans stopped being a thing, and I'm like, hang on a sec, what is going on? Why are people wearing these different jeans? And I still cannot work out the current form of jeans. I wish I could just stick with my skinny jeans. I've still got them, but really trying to get my head around these different shapes of jeans but yeah so um it's good being in an environment like this where you can see things emerging and I certainly wouldn't say I follow trends necessarily but I really like to observe the way that people can kind of incorporate new trends with their own eclectic style and and to me that's really interesting yeah so you studied at RMIT did you also study overseas as well 
I did. So when I left the AFL, I was conscious that um, what was happening in the UK around fashion and textiles, um, it was embracing sustainability more. So um, I sort of took a sabbatical, really, and um, paused my um, course at RMIT. And I, I did a summer school program at St. Martin's College, which was focused on textiles. Um, and I'm not suggesting that I'm a textile artist in any way, shape or form, but I was just really interested to have the opportunity to go there. It felt like, I remember going the first day, it felt like I was going to fame and I took a photo of myself <laughs> out the front of that beautiful big building. Yeah. And, um, can you give, so can you was, just give the audience, because obviously I am aware of the awe of going to Central St Martins, but can you give the audience just some context for how significant an opportunity that is? Yeah, it's... I mean, I think that there are some design schools in the world that, you know, there's Parsons in New York. I got to go there companies. for a bit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and um, it felt like a dream. So I, I do appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, most people who go to those schools are, you know, they go on their merit. They're chosen. Like, it's so hard to get into these schools. And I um, I did a summer school program, so I it was it was not something that I was judged on to, to get in. I just was able to enrol and, and buy my course and whatever. But but to sort of walk the same hallways and and have access to the the, the teachers and um, and the equipment and all of those sorts of things. So it was um, a really amazing experience, um, and and also to have those teachers take you to the galleries and the exhibitions, and then getting inspiration from those things and bringing them back into the classroom, um, and to be able to sort of use different techniques um, to kind of you know create new designs and different mediums and stuff was really amazing. Um, so I loved that experience, and it just opened my mind a lot more um, and and built on the stuff that I was learning at RMIT as well. Um, and was and it was at that point that you you kind of really felt like you'd harnessed where you were going and and where your your kind of rightful spot was. I think so. Yeah, like I think you know I'd always. Um, I sort of, I guess in my career, I've always had the view of where I want the next five years to be. And then I sort of just incrementally make little steps in that direction. Um, and and I think that going to St. Martin's College was the first sort of, well, probably enrolling in RMIT was. And then the next step was that experience. Because once I was there, um, I sort of bought an open ticket. I'd rented out my flat. So I, I had the opportunity to stay there if I wanted to. Um, and I'm like, no, I'm actually going to try and see what else we can do here. So um, after I finished the course, I did an internship with um, the Ethical Fashion Forum. And for people who work in the industry, they'll probably recognise the name. It's a, um, it's a great organisation that connects businesses and individuals and provides a lot of resources and, um, and sort of directories for people who are looking um, to connect with other organisations, suppliers, those sorts of things. So uh, I did a, in, an internship there um, and worked on a research paper that looked at certification. Um, so that was really, really exciting. Um, and, and was this the paper, because I, I, I've, was kind of preparing for our interview. Um, and was it a paper that kind of hailed back to, you know, the Australian relationship to um, sustainability? Uh, that was a different one, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, but that was an interesting one as well. That was when I was working with Ethical Clothing Australia. Okay. Um, yeah, I've forgotten about that one. <laughs> um, I just yeah. found it interesting because, you know, obviously there's these threads of, um, you know, really strong Australian icons in your, your career path mm-hmm. uh, and that even while you're in the UK, you're still finding a way to connect what you're learning back to mm-hmm. the Australian industry and our sense of responsibility to the global community. I thought I thought that part was really interesting and really telling about who you were. Um yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but I think Australia is where it's at now is finding its own path as well. Like there's obviously so much that we can learn um, from, you know, Europe and America where they're in the fashion and retail industry probably doing this um, for longer than, than we have been doing it mm. here. But particularly working in this business, um, a lot of what we're looking at at the moment is raw materials and the experience of COVID, um, you know, how we can do a bit more onshoring that we haven't done for a long time, how we support Australian growers. And and obviously, we've had a long connection with the wool industry, particularly through the Country Road brand, um, but with cotton growers here in Australia and, and looking at the the not just agriculture but manufacturing sectors and um, you know the challenges that we've had in supply chain over the last couple of years with COVID has made us rethink our supply base and how we kind of rely on what has predominantly been one region in China and and we need to kind of diversify that thinking and plan for the future because um, you know things are going to continue to evolve and transform and we need to be adaptive and, and get ahead of that. Yeah well that was that was one of the things I was going to ask you given that we are such a resource rich country do you feel like we do have more of a responsibility um, in the global community to not just be participating in but driving changes from like the grass grassroots so to speak Mm. yeah well we we could be um like there are so many different factors that play into this and and a lot of these factors are outside of my scope of knowledge so i'm not going to you know play to 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 those other aspects but i think if you consider um environmentally um you know certainly what we advocate for is high standards of farming um and ethics in sort of manufacturing supply chain um you can certainly have those challenges here in australia we're not suggesting that that um that those don't exist just because you're manufacturing here in Australia. But there are so many factors environmentally. You've got to look at, you know, chemicals, um, how that impacts biodiversity and farming and pesticides and those sorts of things. Water, you know, different regions of Australia are are, are sort of better positioned than others to grow certain fibres. So um, whether it's wool or or cotton or hemp or, you know, and that's just sort of from a a raw materials point of view, from a fibre point of view, um, not even considering food. But we we do have um, this huge opportunity to play a role. Um, There are obviously so many other factors and dimensions that are a part of that. Um, But also from a a human point of view and an animal point of view, there are so many other factors that we need to be mindful of in the supply chain and how we increasingly work to have higher standards of ethics and sustainability at all levels of that supply chain. And one of the ways that we advocate for that is um, working with suppliers who we know we can um, verifiably 
you know, claim that those fibres or standards have been verified by a third party. So when we're talking to the customer and we can say this product or this cotton or whatever, it's got an independent stamp to say that it is what it is. It's not just us saying it because we're very aware that um, greenwashing in our industry is a really big challenge. Yeah. Um, and this is one way that we can be confident when we're purchasing from suppliers and then communicating that to the customers. It's it's something that has been verified by third party. So that kind of goes back to, you know, what we're saying, what I was saying at the beginning of our interview in your introduction is that there is this kind of sense of responsibility at varying levels. Um, and you're working with a big system, but how do you guys, or, or how do you envisage, um, as, as you know, as a specialist, how do you um, ideally uh, envisage community being playing a central role in um, ideas of sustainability? Hmm. I think um, probably the experience of going through COVID has we've all had the opportunity to reflect on so many things and we've all been challenged by so many things that we kind of took for granted, I think, previously. And one of the things I think has come out of it that was a positive, and I'm not sure to what extent it has remained or will continue to remain, but there was this real sense of um, bringing everything back into your local community. You know, we all wanted to kind of keep the local restaurant going and we'd order takeout from there or we connected with our neighbours or the old lady up the road that we haven't seen for a couple of days, someone would knock on their door. So I think because our world shrank so much, you know, in Melbourne we had a, a, a five-kilometre limit, like we couldn't go anywhere and our worlds were reduced back into such a small physical um, place that we, our eyes opened to what was around us in our local community. And I think that made people want to support um, local businesses. You know, we've seen great initiatives like Buy From The Bush on Instagram and others where we can support businesses in our local sphere um, and feel more connected to what we're doing. So, um, you know, from, a, from an individual point of view, I think that's something that we have um, connected with. And then if I sort of expand that out to, you know, a company like this, we've also introduced, particularly through Country Road, a few new um, initiatives where it has got that connection back to perhaps an Australian landscape. Mm -hmm. So, verifiable um, cotton, Australian cotton and wool, which we've had for a while, um, bringing in some product ranges that are made in Australia. Um, and, and even on the David Jones side of the business where we've had a mindfully made program, it's a shoppable edit online, which we're currently reviewing at the moment. But that Australian edit, so made in Australia edit was our most shopped or most commercial um, edit that people could shop by. So I think that that willingness has always been there and I think it kind of brought it a bit more into focus during COVID. Now that we're coming out of that, it'll be interesting to see whether we kind of just revert back to where we were before or if people want to continue that as part of their own personal values and how that may, may continue to influence their shopping habits going forward. And so one of the things that COVID, I think, also did for us is so you're saying, as you're saying, you know, it kind of it harnessed a sense of community as we're kind of forced to stay in a very small pocket of our lives. Um, but I think because, you know, one of the few joys that you could get if, if, if you were lucky enough to was to be able to go for a walk 
in a park or near a beach or, you know, and I think those small opportunities to connect back with nature and just find the simplicity, um, the beauty in the simplicity of that and the joy and just, you know, fresh air and um, not being in confinement. Um, Do you find, I mean, obviously Country Road is a, a brand that is so synonymous with like a, a relaxed landscape, you know, our, our easygoing lifestyle that is predicated on the environment, like the specific nature that we live in. Have you found that from a, an aesthetic point of view that between Country Road and the Greater David Jones Group, that that, that sense of our um, aesthetic connection to landscape has kind of permeated through the way that the clothes have been designed and represented? I would say so, yeah. I think um, I think that broadly Australians would recognise Country Road as quite an iconic Australian brand. Um, you know, I mean, we, we sometimes joke internally that, like, a lot of the beaches almost look like they're sponsored by Country Road because so many people have beach towels and they've all taken their country road tote bags to the beach or or whatever it is but you know if you think of the clothing um you know that that we wear in different parts of australia that you know you think of the linen shirts that keep us cool and then um i mean this is not necessarily limited to country road obviously but i think that the 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 sense of outdoor lifestyle certainly influences the way that the clothing is designed um but it is that if we're talking earlier about that sense of you know this romanticized idea of what an australian lifestyle is is it that sense of freedom and being outdoors and connecting to nature and you know as a customer i can certainly see that influence um in the clothing that the brand produces definitely and um you know obviously you as you said you've been there for 10 years um You've driven a lot of uh, wonderful initiatives through the organisation. What would you say you're most proud of and what's the most innovative piece of work that you're you're either observing or participating in? It's a big question. Um, it's When I started, it, I started um, soon after the time I got back from London that we were talking about earlier, um, and I started one day a week and I was looking after the packaging covenant, which is a, a reporting initiative um, on how much packaging we use and recycle and fashion trade, which is a customer take back program and the partnership that Country Road has with Red Kite, um, which supports really seriously ill kids um, through their, their journey. So if you think of perhaps where that was 10 years ago to what we're doing now, it's this very broad and comprehensive um program that talks to carbon and packaging through to ethical sourcing and raw materials, biodiversity, circularity. Um, it, it is so broad now, the breadth of what we cover and the whole industry is now talking about ESG and how how the boards are focused on this and they want to share, see the, sh- the shareholders are expecting more from companies in this space. So what was probably back then a nice to do and you know there'd be some nice pictures on the internet and whatever it had much more of a philanthropic approach for our business back then whereas now it is strategically integrated and reported on across the organization with kpis and metrics and it all rolls up to the board and we get asked questions about our performance and our customers hold us to account and our shareholders in south africa hold us to account so that to me um 
you know, and, and the role I've played in helping us to get there has not been alone. There have been a lot of people that have um, have have worked very hard across the organisation, both here in Australia and in South Africa, because we're owned by a South African company, to get us to this point. But I think the the area that I've personally felt most connected to um, in the last couple of years has been the work we've done around reconciliation and. Um, I have, as, as, as much as I've been working on that through the business, I've also been able to go through my own learning um, and relearning of what, what that's meant for me and my own history, my family's history. Um, and this week we just launched the Country Road Group's first Reconciliation Action Plan, which was really an amazing opportunity. So, so that's been a real highlight. But if you think about um, diversity and inclusion more broadly, um, we've also been doing a whole lot of work on how that relates to our employees and their experience of working with us and, um, uh, and then how we connect much more broadly with our customers and the communities that we operate in. So that's also been an exciting piece of work that um, has come together. So, you know, from an accessibility point of view, if you're going into our stores or if you're shopping online, you know, how how do people, transgender and non-binary, how do they shop our products? How do they use our change rooms? Um, you know, culturally, you know, the way that people dress, you know, people that might want separate change rooms, they might want modest dressing, how do we tra train our staff to kind of um, give our customers what they need from a service point of view, um, how we speak to people, you know, the language that we use, like there's just so much opportunity for us to grow in this space as well. And we're already doing some really good things, but how, how do we continue to evolve? Because this whole like the industry, the fashion industry, every industry is always transforming and the way that we shop is transforming, the way that we access and value our clothing is transforming um, and businesses need to be very savvy and mindful to innovating um, to remain viable as businesses. Um, you know, and even thinking about the, the sort of growing area of resale of clothing, you know, customers are taking this into their own hands now and, you know, businesses, if they, they want to remain relevant to their customers, need to consider how they involve and work with their customers on the resale of clothing. And accessing clothing is very different to just buying it and sticking it in your wardrobe. You know, there's rental and resale and repair and modification and all of these sorts of dynamics now that we need to get our heads around. Because um, you guys are, I, you guys are actually like leading the charge in um, partnering with hire companies and resale companies, correct? Which mm. um, is quite a big shift when you think about the mentality of what we associate with big business. Uh, how does that sit? Is that is that something like as you said? Is that something that the shareholders are driving? Um, I wouldn't say shareholders. I think our, we can see our customers changing. Um, you know, and I think the the elephant in the room for any retailer is that that you know our businesses are fundamentally set up to based on sales. So we we make stuff that people buy, and if you think about. Um, you know, limited raw materials and, and limited space on the earth resources to grow and water and, and um, create, um, you know, fibres, um, you know, the, the, the pressures on factories and supply chains. And, and we already have overstuffed wardrobes. To what extent do we need new things? Um, so rethinking the way that as, as businesses we can create 
different income streams that still enable us to connect with our customers and what are the services and the, the, the product offerings that, that we can create that are going to meet the needs of the customers that are changing in the future. And, um, and rental and resale is something that is a really interesting opportunity for us and, and for all retailers. And we have started um, some rental partnerships with Glam Corner. We also have um, luxury resale in the David Jones business um, with Blue Spinach. So these are the sorts of partnerships and, and opportunities that we're really trying to unpack um, and there's so much more that we can be doing, you know, designing for longevity, designing our clothing so that it lasts for a really long time so that it can be supported by these systems of rental and resale for longer, um, repair services, re modification, like the possibilities are endless. So we have started with a few great initiatives and we're really keen to sort of expand our thinking around what else is possible. Yeah, I think it's really interesting seeing big businesses start to participate and drive a circular fashion economy. Um, so hats off to you. Um, now, one of the things that you you have have said in one of your interviews uh, in the past is that your ideal situation is that you do yourself out of a job. Um, <laughs> where does that sit with you now, Eloise? <laughs> well, interesting. This is actually my last week with the business. So I was successful in achieving my mission. Um, but no, we, um, we, we've had a, um, a group restructure. So we're actually creating two new roles, which will be really exciting. So, um, heads of sustainability for David Jones and then another one for the country road group. So, um, so I think that that is a really exciting opportunity and we're currently, um, recruiting for those people. And, and I've made the decision that after 10 years, I've, I've achieved so much and loved what I have done here. So I'm ready to explore some new things in the new year. And I will be a very keen observer observer of how the businesses continue to evolve on their own journeys. Um, yeah, and I look forward to seeing what those new roles, those people in those new roles are able to do. So given all that you've learned, like you've obviously, you know, on a, a especially um, the trajectory of learning uh, around, you know, changing a, a fashion economy and sustainable practices that go everywhere from raw materials to you know how we participate in the community um there's so much there that you would you know I can only imagine the last 10 years has just been like a bombardment of knowledge for you but uh, how has that changed you personally and and how has that shifted the way that you dress what are some of the fundamental things that have changed in in the way that you approach your wardrobe a really good question. Um, I just want to address the first part of what you said because I think yeah. that's really interesting as well. Um, it it is it's a very dynamic space to work in, and you I think as professionals in this space, and certainly the people that work in our team are constantly looking for the next thing. So we don't have the expertise in all of these areas all the time. What we do have is a thirst and interest to identify what the next thing is and get our heads around it really quickly to then work out how we create an approach for the business. And in in our team, we've got experts in all of these different areas, so packaging and carbon, um, someone focused on circularity, someone on raw materials. So collectively, these people are, are just bringing all this new knowledge into the business all the time. And it's certainly not my expertise. I rely on them um, to to brief me and, and know enough that I can kind of do interviews like this and sound like I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, 
But it's it's a really good question because as we continue to learn more about those areas, it really challenges your own thinking around what you do because we are all consumers of fashion and we work for a business that has big sample sales and great discounts and all of those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it's I probably find that um, I am very conscious of, of what I buy and the brands that I buy from. So, you know, within the Country Road group of brands, we've not just got Country Road, we've got Witchery, Mimco, Politics and Trenary. So, you know, we know internally the practices that those businesses are, are adhering to and the work that we're doing with them, you know, across the board to increasingly raise those standards of ethics and sustainability. So I can confidently shop, particularly also when they create new edits like the Australian Made Edit or the Verified Cotton Edit or those sorts of things. So so probably my interest is naturally, you know, leaning towards those sorts of edits. And then on the David Jones side, we've got this mindfully made program that will come back live soon where we highlight um, third-party brands or vendors that have much higher standards of ethics and sustainability. So, you know, you've got great brands like Stella McCartney and Basic and, um, you know, so many others. I'm not even going to try and remember them. But, you know, within those sorts of edits, you can also kind of zone in. But, but probably what I do do is buy when I need something new. I don't just, um, you know, shop for the sake of shopping as much. I'm conscious about what what I buy, which brand I buy for, and do I actually really need it? Um, you know, if I think of my grandma's wardrobe, which, when, she, when she died, you know, she had her good coat and she had her good dress and um, and a good pair of shoes. And, and it's almost like trying to take lessons from that and think about how you apply it. So, yeah, learning the lessons of your, your grandmother and, and of history, yeah. you know, going back in time almost to... to um, find a way forward yeah and valuing the clothing that we have um because if we buy well and it's good quality and it's well made um and we look after those pieces they should be in our wardrobes for a really long time um and i think that's the the risk with fast fashion is that you know and i know the world is is changing particularly with social media but um you know, particularly, you know, to, the temptation to buy something that is of lesser quality, that may have a lower price point, that doesn't have that longevity. The reality is most of it can't be recycled and particularly when it's damaged, um, you know, op shops are not going to be able to use it. Um, it's going to end up as landfill. Um, so, so taking that sense of responsibility as a consumer for what happens to that product at end of life, I think is something that not everyone considers. But I'd like to think that people's knowledge and, and sense of responsibility is not just, I've bought it, I've paid my money, I've worn it a couple of times, it's done, it's in the bin. But, you know, that stewardship of the product from, you know, where has it come from, from a, a sort of a resource or raw materials point of view through the manufacturing supply chain, through the shop, into our wardrobes and we've also got to consider the end of life aspect so um, it's not just 
you know, wipe our hands of it the minute we don't want it anymore. We need to consider what happens to that product at the end of life. And and it's retailers need to think about that, suppliers and customers. We collectively need to consider that. And it's um it's something that we're looking at from an industry point of view, you know, textile product stewardship and, and there's huge scope for us to consider how we can reuse and recycle some of those textile materials that are currently going to landfill. And personally, do you find that you you're steering away from those um, like synthetic materials uh, within your own yeah, style? Yeah, I do. There's, but then, having said that, synthetic materials can provide um, a lot of longevity in products. If you think of outdoor wear and those sorts of things that are often made out of synthetics. Um, if you, the, the best thing that you can do is just continue the use phase for as long as possible. So, you know, if you're going to invest in a really good quality outdoor jacket, um, buy well and, and know what you're buying. I mean, sometimes they might be able to be made of recycled polyester or those sorts of things, but it's more about how you wear it and look after it and then keep it in good condition so that hopefully you could sell it or pass it on to the next person. And I know with my kids' stuff, um, you know, we have this organic system of passing all of those things through different families and you just want to be a custodian of it so that you can look after it and pass it on in the same condition to the next family. Which is, so, especially with kids that wear their clothes hard, um, even I think that's one of the things is, is a, a big learning for me whilst I'm happy to have bought vintage and and. Um, secondhand understanding uh, the fast fashion in my kids' wardrobes because they do transcend through items so quickly that, you know, you feel like, oh, well, it's inevitable that, that they're going to churn through stuff. But I, I honestly, and this is no joke, but I have found the, the items that I've gotten from Country Road are, it, um, are actually noticeably elevated from uh, some of the other children's wear brands to the point where I am happy and comfortable and feel like they're respectable enough in terms of their condition Mm -hmm. to pass them on to smaller friends or to resell them. Um, But most of the other clothes have not held up. You know, they're trashed. So I think that um, actually looking into the entry of understanding children's wear in that fast fashion Mm -hmm. cycle is also really, really important. Um, I agree. Yeah. And and I think I would also agree with you that often the clothing I'm given is secondhand. A lot of it is country road as well. Yeah. I'd like to think though, you know, my kids go through knees really quickly. The rest of the garment is totally fine. But one, one of my kids in particular always goes through the left knee. The other one doesn't <laughs> go through anything. I don't know what when he does. But, you know, I, you know, how can we repair things more easily or can you cut things off and turn them into shorts or yeah, because I think that there's a lot of scope for us to consider the the repair aspect, which we've forgotten to do. And I think we're all time poor and we're losing the skills of, you know, having a sewing machine at home where we have got the knowledge and the, the capability to repair things. It's, it's easier, easier and often cheaper to throw it out and buy a new one, which is terrible. So um, do you think that sense of repair will enter into the bigger businesses in terms of their model? It could. I mean, it's something that we're considering at the moment. Um, you know, it's something that we need to understand from our customers if that's something that 
that they're interested in um, and then also what's our role as a as a business to kind of encourage that as well so there's a lot of work for us to do in that space to consider I mean most of our clothing is um, is manufactured offshore so it's it's not necessarily feasible for us to be sending things back to the suppliers but what could we be doing in a more local um context. So Mimco has started offering um, repair services and um, I was walking past the Mimco area just this morning and they've got um, an area where they can sit up and, and make more jewellery out of old jewellery and pull things apart and, and it's very sort of bespoke and, and they've got the the human resources to be able to do that. Mm. Um, but but something like that that's scalable, um, we've got someone in our team who's worked for Eileen Fisher before and when they had um, a customer take-back scheme for their business, when they were getting the clothing back, they could see certain patterns of wear on using particular materials and fibres. So um, she talks about there was a, a type of fabric, I think it was a silk that was used that stained really easily and, and all these clothes that were coming back had this stain. So it was really good information for the design team to have um, so that they could modify either the fabric choice or the design going forward. So there's a lot of information that we still don't know yet about um, our clothing in the use phase that, you know, would be great to understand so that, A, we can consider whether, you know, repairs is viable, but also to inform our design and, and production decisions so that things are, you know, designed for longevity and, and are quite durable, which and I think would also be great. I think what's really interesting about that as well is it hails back to that beginning part of our conversation that says our clothes mean something. And if we think of them more as an entity, you know, like like we're talking about the, from the from their origin stories to their life pattern, they do start to tell a story. Um, and that story is, as you're saying, it's really valuable information to feed back into the care system. Um, so uh, given all of that information, Eloise, in terms of um, your your future style, how would you like to see yourself uh dressing at when you're when you're in your old age is, is is you going to be having your one good coat and your one good dress and your one nice pair of shoes <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that I think it's unlikely because I'm like a bow bird like I collect things and just keep them in the cupboard and we've recently been um decluttering our house to sell and I find it very hard to get rid of things so I don't necessarily buy a lot but I keep things um and then I'm really excited when they come back into fashion and I can pull them out again and um but no I think I don't know my style um I think is is probably quite relaxed and functional because um I'm often with kids and the dog at the park and and those sorts of things but I do like to wear fun things um I wear a lot of color and you know um and and you know accessories and fun glasses and things like that but you know there's always um at, at the audience as well you don't want to end up at the school gate looking too crazy <laughs> but, but having those opportunities to be able to kind of pull together fun outfits sometimes they're a bit weird and sometimes they're not but people are polite and don't say anything so I think maybe as I get older my filter might get less and I might 
come out with some weirder things, but who knows? Yeah. It's exciting yeah. to find out. I hope to see you at 80 years old with your crazy glasses and your big big wool coat. <laughs> Probably from Country Road. Still Probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Eloise, thank you so much for sharing your style story with me and um, for participating in the interview today. Thank you, Mads. It's been really fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Like her Australian childhood, Eloise's style can be a little freeform, but also like the values of her upbringing, she brings a strong sense of community and pastoral care to all she does, including her style. As Eloise's sense of what it means to be Australian alters and evolves, so does the eclecticism of her style, reflecting the desire for diversity and her ethics of inclusion. And while she may be a little crafty and err on the side of costume at times, there is an elegance and an ease to Eloise's style that are at the essence of her story.